Well, you can turn to the book of Matthew. We'll start in Matthew 15. We'll actually be all over the Bible today. Uh, But you can turn to Matthew chapter 15. While you do, I was told in no uncertain terms that I need to give you guys an update on my eye. I haven't told you how things are going. Many of you have been praying for my eye. Uh, If you weren't here last year, just to fill you in, I have a weird problem in my right eye. And about a year ago, it just went blurry. I can't see through my right eye anymore. So I had surgery last April and they were giving it about a year to see if it would get better. And I had an appointment this last week and it's, it's not really getting any better. So they're going to send me to a specialist down in Houston next week and we'll see if more surgery is needed or uh, what they're going to need to do for my eye. So I appreciate you guys' prayers. I'll let you know how things go when I hear back from them. Uh, hopefully uh, the Lord will heal it. That's the prayer. That would be great. Well, this morning we're going to look uh, again at the teachings of Jesus. We're going to continue our spring series on uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ. I'll forewarn you guys, uh, this morning's sermon is going to be very, very difficult. This is one of the most challenging sermons I've ever tried to give, challenging from an intellectual and theological standpoint. Now, the fact that it's challenging is really not my fault. It's Jesus's fault. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, you realize pretty quick, these are hard. There are some hard things that Jesus said. It's hard to understand the teachings of Jesus. I don't know if you can uh, identify with this. Uh, Oftentimes, I'll find myself reading through one of the Gospels, and and I'll get to the red letters in my Bible, the words of Jesus, and and I'll read them in and then I'll stop and I'll think, what in the world did I just read? What, what did he say? And, and so I'll go back and I'll read the paragraph again and I'll realize that uh, reading it a second time didn't help at all. I'm still as confused as ever and so I'll read it a third time and I'll read it a fourth time and I'll end up thinking, what in the world is Jesus saying? I don't understand this. It seems to contradict everything else I've read in scripture. If you've read the teachings of Jesus, it doesn't take you long to realize he said some really hard things to understand. It's tough to understand the teachings of Jesus. I'm just going to give you a few examples this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Let me, let me throw some, some problems out there to you, some teachings of Jesus that are hard to understand. Let's start in verse 22 of Matthew 15. And a Canaanite or Gentile woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, wait a minute. I I thought that Jesus is my Savior. I thought he came to deliver me from sin, but I'm a Gentile, and this passage says he didn't come for me. It says he came for the Jews, not for me, but not only does this passage say he didn't come for me, it says that when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see a son of God. What does he see? A dog. Jesus thinks of me as a dog? What do we do with that passage? Not going to tell you yet. We'll get back to it. (laughs) Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at another hard passage. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? 
Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. But wait a minute, all last semester we say the book of Galatians. What do Galatians teach us? That to have eternal life, all you need to do is believe. That it's by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus that you have eternal life. That's how you get eternal life. But Jesus is saying, no, it's by works. If you want to have eternal life, you have to obey all the commandments. And in fact, that's not even enough. You have to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's the only way to gain eternal life. Okay, let me give you another hard one. I'm not going to answer that one yet. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So Jesus is going out and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist proclaimed the same message, this gospel of the kingdom. What is that message? Look back at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the gospel according to Jesus is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does he and John mean by repent? Well, I'll just summarize this. John tells us in Luke 3, 10 to 14, repent means be a just and compassionate and giving person. Go give away your possessions. Don't extort anybody. Be merciful and kind. Now Jesus takes it a step further. He follows this gospel of repentance with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. He gives incredibly hard commands to follow, and he summarizes them in chapter 5, verse 48. He says, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does Jesus mean by repent? He means act perfectly, perfectly obey God, not just in deed, but in thought, in attitude. You must perfectly obey God. Okay, but wait a minute. Last semester, what was the gospel? What did we talk about? The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. If you want to get to heaven, you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's the gospel as I've been preaching it to you for a year. And yet Jesus says, no, the gospel is obey the law perfectly. Okay, so are Jesus and Paul at odds with one another? Are they in disagreement with one another? Do we need to pick one of them? Well, Paul's a great guy, but Jesus is a son of God, so I'm going to jettison Paul. Out goes Galatians, out goes Philippians, out goes everything we've preached on for the last year. What do we do with the teachings of Jesus? Well, let me confess to you, the teachings of Jesus have tripped up believers for hundreds of years. And not just most of us, they've tripped up pastors They've tripped up seminary professors. They've tripped up PhDs. They've tripped up so many believers because those believers lacked the two keys to unlocking the teachings of Jesus. And that's what I want to give you this morning. That's what this is about this morning. I want to give you the two keys to understanding Jesus, two tools or two skills that you must have if you're going to understand the words of Jesus Christ. Actually, these, these two skills are, are how you understand any piece of Scripture. Anytime you open the Bible, these two tools are what you use to understand what the Bible actually means. But they're particularly important for understanding the words of Jesus Christ. 
So let me give you these two tools. Let me just start with tool number one. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand what he taught, the first thing you must be able to do, the skill you must be able to practice is you must be able to understand key words. You must be able to understand the key words of the Bible. So let's take an example, the word gospel. When Jesus uses the word gospel, what comes to your mind? What do you think about when you hear the word gospel? You you probably think, like most of us, how do I get to heaven? The gospel is the way that I enter into an eternal relationship with God. That's how we use the word. And so when we see it in scripture, we assume, well, they mean what we mean. This is how you get to heaven, but that's not how the Bible works. How do you determine what words mean in the Bible? It's not based on how we use them. It's how the authors of scripture use those words. If you want to understand what a word means when you read it in your Bible, you have to put in some homework. You have to do some work. You have to put in some effort to study what that word means in scripture. So we're going to do that with the word gospel. It appears a little over 100 times in the New Testament as gospel or preach the gospel. Related words in Hebrew appear about 30 times in the Old Testament. Let me give you a sampling of how the word is used so you can understand what it means. Here's a sample from 1 Samuel 31. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, literally the gospel, to the houses of their idols and to the people. Well, that gospel has nothing to do with how to get to heaven. That's the good news that they cut off Saul's head. That's not even good news to us. That's only good news to the Philistines. Here's another example. Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, or the gospel, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. That's the other name for Jerusalem. Okay, what is this gospel? This isn't about how to get to heaven. This is the good news that God is going to restore the city of Jerusalem, that God is going to bring blessings and peace and prosperity again to the city of Jerusalem. That's the gospel in this passage. Okay, now let's move to the New Testament. We saw one example, Jesus and John the Baptist, gospel of the kingdom. Here's another example of the word in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's how Paul uses it. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, there's the gospel as we think about it. That's how we typically use the term. Paul's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, what do we learn as we study this word in scripture? What we learn is that the term gospel is not a technical term for how to get to heaven. It's simply a word that means good news. When you see gospel in your Bible, that's all it means is good news. You have to determine from the passage you're reading, what is this good news? Maybe it's something pretty pretty gross, like cutting Saul's head off. Maybe it is about the fact that Jesus died for sins and rose from the dead. It can mean different things in different places. Jesus and Paul are not at odds with one another because they're not talking about the same gospel. They're not proclaiming the same good news. What is Paul talking about by gospel? He's talking about the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the gospel as we proclaim it. That we can have an eternal relationship with God. We can be forgiven and spend eternity with God if we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the gospel as Paul proclaims it. What is Jesus' gospel? It's something different. This gospel of the kingdom isn't what Paul was talking about. It's something different. But the only way to know what Jesus was talking about, the only way to understand the gospel according to Jesus, is to use the second key, the second tool 
for understanding Scripture. So let's move to that. The second thing that you must be able to do when you study a passage of Scripture is you must be able to fit that passage into the context. You must know how to study the context of a passage. Let me give you an example that has nothing to do with your Bibles. What if I was to say this phrase to you? The boys are preparing to fight the cheese heads on the frozen tundra for the wild card spot. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you are shaking your heads. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about the Dallas Cowboys are getting ready to play the Green Bay Packers at Lambeau Field for the last spot in the playoffs. That's what that sentence means. The only way to know what that sentence means, though, is to have the context of American football. Imagine for a moment you were born and raised in China and you just arrived at Texas A&M to get your graduate degree. It's January and somebody walks up to you and says this sentence. Will you know what it means? It'll be gibberish to you. You won't understand it at all because you don't know the context of American football. To understand any speech, any language, we must understand its context. Context is the stuff that surrounds a passage of Scripture. When we enter into the Bible, context is what is around that passage. It includes a few things. The context of Scripture includes the book as a whole. If you want to understand these hard passages, Matthew 15, Matthew 19, you have to fit them in the context of the overall book of Matthew. They're only going to make sense if you understand the book of Matthew as a whole. The first part of context is the book as a whole. Second piece of context is the Bible as a whole. The, The Bible that is in your hands is not simply a collection of 66 books. It is one unified story. One united story that runs from Genesis to Revelation, the story of God's dealings with humanity, his workings among humankind as he restores us so that we can be his kingdom representatives on earth. That's a unified story of scripture and every book of the Bible fits into it. If you want to understand Jesus' words in Matthew 15 and Matthew 19, you have to fit them into the Bible as a whole. Because they're part of the story of God's interaction with the human race. So second part of context is the Bible as a whole. Third piece of context or thing that we need to fit these passages into is the world of the author and the audience. The author and his audience shared things in common that we don't share. They shared a certain language. When Jesus came, did he come speaking English? No came spoken Aramaic. They shared a language in common. They shared customs in common. They shared beliefs and practices and values in common. Those things shape the context in which those passages are given. If you're going to understand what Jesus spoke, you have to understand the, the world of he and his audience. You have to be able to see the passage through their eyes. Okay, so if we're going to understand Jesus, we have to be able to fit him in to context. We have to understand how his words fit into the context of the Gospels, the context of the Bible, and the context of the world in which he lives. So we're going to spend the most of the rest of the morning doing that, placing Jesus into context. Let's, let's do that. Let, let me start by uh, giving you guys a, a statement that's going to strike many of you as uh, surprising, maybe heretical. <laughs> when we look at Jesus and we seek to fit him into context, we need to understand That Jesus came to a particular people at a particular time, and it's not us. Jesus did not come to us. Jesus did not come to 21st century evangelical Christians in America. That's not who he's speaking to. When you get to those red letters in your Bible, you need to understand those red letters are not to you. They apply to your life. They're relevant to your life. But Jesus wasn't speaking to you. Who was he speaking to? First century Jews. 
That's his audience. That's the, the people to whom his words are directed. We have to understand his words aren't to us. They're, they're relevant to us, but they're not directed to us. They're directed to first century Jews. If we're going to understand what Jesus spoke, we have to get into the mind of a first century Jew. We have to hear his words as they would have heard his words. So let's, let's spend some time doing that. What do we know about these first century Jews to whom Jesus was speaking? Let me give you a few things we know about them. Number one, we know that they are the covenant covenant people. The Jews, when they thought about themselves, their identity, their, the, the way they thought about themselves in God's eyes is we are the covenant people. We are the people who possess, who own the covenants of the Old Testament. Now, if you've been around here for a while, we've talked a lot about these. There are four covenants revealed in the Old Testament that God gives to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. These four covenants are the foundation of the whole Bible. They're what the Bible is about, the revelation and fulfillment of these four covenants. They don't belong to us Gentiles. They belong to the Israelites. Let's talk about, let's review these covenants real quick. The first one was given to the forefather of the Jewish nation, to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is simply a gift covenant. God says, Abraham, I freely give to you for all of eternity land, seed, and blessing. I give you the promised land, the the land we call Canaan. I I give you seed or descendants. You will always have descendants on the earth. And finally, I give you blessing. And and I give you so much blessing that it's going to overflow through your life into the lives of everyone on the face of the planet. I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Second covenant given to the nation of Israel is the Mosaic covenant. It's given through Moses. It makes up Exodus to Deuteronomy in your Bible. It's not like the Abrahamic covenant. It's different. This isn't a gift covenant. This is a covenant of obligation. It's it's a law that God gives. He says, Israel, here is the law. If you obey this law, you will be blessed. If you obey this law, you will receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in your life. But if you disobey my law, what do you get instead of blessing? curses. If you disobey my law, I will not bless you. I will curse you. Well, that's actually the storyline of the Old Testament. It's, it's how the Israelite people who owned all these blessings, who were people of incredible promise, how they missed out on the promised blessings of God. Why? Because they disobeyed the Mosaic law. That's the second covenant, a covenant of obligation. Here's the law. If you obey it, you experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. If you disobey, you experience curse. Third covenant given to the nation of Israel, the Davidic covenant. This is given to David. It's like the Abrahamic covenant. It's a gift covenant. God says, David, I freely give to you for all eternity the kingdom of Israel. It will always be your descendants ruling on the throne over a kingdom that is prosperous and plentiful. Okay, this covenant, just like the Abrahamic covenant, though, was conditioned on the Mosaic covenant. The only way the nation would enjoy the Davidic kingdom, would enjoy peace and prosperity, is if they obeyed the Mosaic law. Fourth and final covenant given to the nation of Israel, the new covenant. We talked about this last semester in the book of Galatians. This is the promise of God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit would come and live within us. Okay, that that promise is yet future when Jesus comes. When Jesus arrives on earth, the new covenant isn't in effect yet. When did the new covenant begin? When did God begin to send the Spirit? It's not till after the death of Jesus. It says Jesus hangs on the cross that the new covenant begins. It's Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit is given. So Jesus shows up to an audience who doesn't have the new covenant. They don't have the Spirit like we do. They're hoping for it, but they don't have it yet. 
So when you think about the first century Jews, when you try to understand this audience to whom Jesus was speaking, the first thing you have to understand, this is a people who are God's covenant people. That's how they think about themselves. We are the possessors of the four biblical covenants. They belong to us. They shape all of our lives. They're the basis of our hope. They're the basis of our life. They give us regulations for how to live. Everything's about the covenants. And I think this helps us understand the difficult passage in Matthew 15. Why does Jesus say, I came not for the Gentiles, but only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Why does Jesus say that? Because he understands his Old Testament. Jesus understands how will God bless the world? How will blessings come to us as Gentiles? Through Israel. It is only as the Jews are blessed that the blessings overflow through their lives to the rest of the world. The nation of Israel was designed to be a pipeline, a conduit through whom God would bless the whole world. It's not that God likes Jews better than us. It's that God picked the Jewish nation to be the gate through whom all his blessings would flow to us. And so Jesus understood, if I want to bless the world, how do I do it? I fix Israel. Until the Jews are blessed, until they're receiving the blessings of the covenant, there's no blessings to go to the rest of us. That's why Jesus came first to the Jews. He went to the Jews first because you've got to fix the Jews to bless the world. That's what that passage is telling us. So first thing you need to know about first century Jews, they realized, they knew that they were the covenant people. Second thing you need to know about Jesus's audience is that they assumed that they were already in with God by blood and by outward obedience to the Mosaic law. Jesus showed up to an audience who did not think they needed spiritual salvation. They thought they were already in with God. They thought they were already God's people. They already belonged to God's family. How? Because number one, they had the right blood in their veins. They had the right genetics. They were related to Abraham because they were born into the right family. They already belonged to God. Second, because of outward obedience to the Mosaic law. This is particularly true of the scribes and Pharisees. They took the whole Mosaic law and they boiled it down to 619 outward practices that you could put on a checklist. They, they literally had a checklist and they check it off each day as they did these 619 things. And so the scribes and the Pharisees believed that they, they, weren't, all, they weren't just in with God. They were righteous. They were, they were honored in God's sight because they had the right blood and because they obeyed their list of commands. Well, this actually explains a lot of the teaching of Jesus. He came to an audience who didn't think they needed spiritual salvation. They thought they were already in with God. And so over and over again, what is Jesus going to do? He is going to reveal to these people that you are not in with God. You have a problem. It's called sin. It needs to be fixed. I think this isn't the explanation to Matthew 19, this rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus asking, how can I have eternal life? But Jesus knows here is a man who is self-righteous. Here's a man who believes that he's in with God because he has the right blood and he's obeyed the outward commands of the Mosaic law. The man says as much. Jesus says, obey the commands. And what does the guy say? I've always obeyed these commands. In Luke, in the parallel passage, he says, from my youth, from when I was a child, I always perfectly obeyed God. Really? You've perfectly obeyed God your whole life? Okay, Jesus says, If you're going to think that you're earning eternal life through your obedience, that you're in with God through your obedience, let me raise it a notch. Let me tell you how well you have to obey God. You must be as gracious as God. You must go sell all you possess and give it to the poor. Jesus' point is not that you merit heaven through your works. Jesus' point is, dude, you need to realize you are lost. You have a problem. It's called sin. You think you're righteous by your works. You're not. 
The tragedy of that encounter with the rich young ruler is not that the guy didn't go sell his possessions. It's that the story ends and he goes away. He leaves Jesus. I think the application of Jesus' words to this guy isn't that the guy just goes right and writes a check and sells all he has. It's the guy should have fallen on his knees and said, Jesus, help me. Oh my gosh, if that's what it takes, I'm, I'm lost. I can't do that. I can't go sell all I have. Help me. That's what Jesus' words were meant to do. Same idea of the Sermon on the Mount. These incredibly hard commands that Jesus gives. Like, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you have hatred towards your brother, you've committed murder. Why is Jesus saying those words? Is he saying it to tell us how we get to heaven? No. He's saying it to an audience who thinks they're already in. He's saying it to an audience who needs to realize you're not in. You have a major problem. It's called sin. You need to get on your knees and ask for my help. That's why Jesus said those words. They thought they were already in by blood and by outward obedience to the law. Third thing we need to know about these first century Jews. They were a people who were desperate for deliverance. Desperate for deliverance. By deliverance, I don't mean spiritual deliverance. I mean political deliverance. They had for centuries been under the oppression of Gentiles. I want you to turn to the end of your Old Testament. The last words of the Old Testament, book of Malachi, right before Matthew. Look at Malachi chapter 4. Malachi was written a little over 400 years before Jesus came. So the words we're about to read are God's last words to his people. And then they just hang in the air for 400 and something years until John the Baptist and Jesus show up. So here is the closing statement of the Old Testament that's on everyone's mind, all of the Jews' minds when Jesus shows up. Start with me, chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And there ends the Old Testament. That's the end of it. Those are the words ringing in the ears of the Jews when Jesus arrives. Now, that chapter reveals to us two things that God's going to do when the Messiah arrives. Two things he's going to do when Jesus shows up. Here they are. Number one, he is going to heal God's people. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. He will bring spiritual healing to the people of God. Restore the hearts of the children to the father. Second, he will bring destruction to the enemies of God. Burning fire, they will be tread like chaff. Okay, those are the two ministries that the Messiah would bring uh, according to the Old Testament. Now, let me ask you, which of those two ministries did Jesus first care about when he came? You've read the Gospels. Which of them was Jesus focused on when he first came to the nation of Israel? Yeah, the first one. Jesus isn't pulling out a sword. He's talking about sin. He's talking about the need for spiritual healing. That's what he cares about first. Uh, But which of those two ministries did the people care about most? What did they want first? Yeah, the second one. That's what they wanted. That was their priority. Uh, Jesus come and wipe out the Romans, wipe out the Gentiles. Why did they care about the second more than the first? Why didn't they care about the first? 
because they thought they were already in with God. They don't need the first. Jesus shows up to a nation who thinks they're already saved. They're already in with God by blood and by outward obedience to the law. Jesus, we don't need you to heal us. We don't want to hear from you about sin and about righteousness because we're already good with God. Jesus, get on with pulling out the sword and wiping out the Romans. This is the basis for the conflict and rejection that you'll read about as we go through the Gospels. Why did the people reject their Messiah? Because they didn't like the kind of Messiah God sent. They're not interested in a Messiah who convicts them about sin, who challenges them about righteousness. They want a Messiah who pulls out the sword and wipes out the Romans. For hundreds of years, they had been under Gentile oppression, and all they could think about was political deliverance. Wipe out the Romans. That's all we care about. We don't need your spiritual healing. That's the basis for much of the teaching of Jesus. He is speaking to an audience who doesn't realize they are not right with God. If Jesus would have showed up, think about this hypothetically. If Jesus would have showed up on the scene 2,000 years ago and the first thing he would have done would, was wipe out the enemies of God, who would be left standing? No one. Jesus would have pulled out the sword, the Gentiles would have died, and so would the Jews. Why? Because they're not in with God. It's not enough to have the right blood. It's not enough to obey the outward commands of the law. If Jesus pulls out the sword, everybody dies. Throughout his ministry, he's constantly telling his audience, you are not in with God. If I pull out the sword, you die. You need to get on your knees and bow before me and ask for my help. If I don't heal you, you will not survive my wrath. That's the ministry of Jesus. He came first to heal because if he doesn't heal, no one makes it through the sword. Okay, so this is the first piece of context we need to fit the teachings of Jesus in. He didn't come to speak to us. He came to speak to first century Jews. People who were people of the covenant from the Old Testament. People who thought they were in with God by blood and by outward obedience to the law. And people who were desperate for deliverance, not of a spiritual kind, but of a political kind. Second thing we need to understand about context. Not only did Jesus come to a particular people at a particular time, but he came with a particular mission. Jesus is the ultimate man on a mission. Everything he did fit into the mission for which he came to earth. So let's talk about that mission. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 has a lot to tell us about the mission of Jesus. We're going to start in verse 30 of Luke chapter 1. So what is Jesus' mission when he shows up on the scene? Well, here is the angel speaking to Mary before Jesus was born. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now what of the biblical covenants does that sound like? That's the Davidic covenant. Jesus came. What was his mission? Well, to be the Davidic king, to restore the Davidic kingdom. Jesus came not first as savior, but as king. I am your king. Second passage we want to look at. Move uh, towards the end of Luke chapter one. Relatively long passage, but incredibly important for understanding the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus. We're going to start in verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Notice again the covenantal language. We have again a reference to the house of David, the Davidic covenant. And now we have a reference to Abraham. Why is Jesus coming? It's because God is remembering his promise to Abraham. Jesus is coming to fulfill the covenants. What is the ministry of Jesus about? It's about his fulfillment of the four biblical covenants given to Israel. He came to be the Davidic king and as king bring fulfillment to all the promises God had made to the nation of Israel. That's Jesus' mission. If you have to sum it up, why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago to the nation of Israel? He shows up on the scene for this mission to restore the Davidic kingdom as king and then fulfill all the covenants. Now, would Jesus go to the cross? Yes, he knew he was headed to the cross, but he wasn't talking about that yet. When he shows up on the scene, what is he talking about? I am your king. I am here to fulfill your covenants. When we think of Jesus, we think of him as a carpenter, a humble man who will hang on a cross. Well, that's true, but what we don't realize is that he's also king. When you read Matthew chapter 11 and Jesus says to the nation of Israel, take my yoke upon you. What does he mean by that metaphor? Take my yoke upon you. What he's saying is, I am master and you are a bunch of cows. Bend your neck and I will put my yoke upon you. In other words, I'm your king, bow the knee. It's not, a, it's not language of humility. It's a language of a king. Now the great news is, he goes on and says, I am a master gentle of heart. I'm a good master. I'm the king you want to have, but bend the knee. That's what the authoritative teaching and and miracles of Jesus are about. He's saying, I have the authority and power of a king. Bow to me. Jesus came to offer himself to the nation of Israel as their Davidic king. He came so that if they would have accepted him as their Davidic king, he could have fulfilled all of the biblical covenants, all of the promises God had made to them. Now for that to happen, for, for Jesus to bring about that restoration, that fulfillment of the covenants, what did they have to do? Well, we're going we're gonna to look real quick at a very significant passage in the Old Testament, right at the end of the law, the end of the Mosaic covenant, Deuteronomy 30. These are the words of Moses. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. God knew, even when he gave the Mosaic law, he knew that the nation was going to blow it. He knew that they were going to disobey. He knew that as a result of disobedience, they were going to be exiled. They were going to be put under the Gentiles, but he promises, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you to your kingdom. I'm going to bring you back in fulfillment of the covenants. But what must you do to experience restoration? You must obey the law. So Jesus shows up and he says, I am king. I'm bringing the restoration of the Davidic covenant. But what must the Israelites do to enter Jesus's Davidic kingdom? They must obey. 
When Jesus preaches this gospel of the kingdom and he says, obey the law, he's not talking about how to get to heaven. What is he talking about? How to enter my kingdom on earth. When I sit on the throne in Jerusalem and institute my kingdom over the earth, what must you do to be on my good side? What must you do to be a part of my covenanted kingdom? You must obey the Mosaic law. Because that's what the Old Testament taught us. The way to experience the blessings of God in this life is by obeying the Mosaic law. That's what the Old Testament said for the Jews. So Jesus comes and he says, I'm restoring the kingdom. I'm restoring the covenants to you. But to experience this blessing, to be part of my kingdom on earth, you must obey the law. Jesus isn't talking about how to get to heaven. That's the solution to this problem. The gospel according to John the Baptist and the gospel according to Jesus when he shows up is the Davidic kingdom is here, so prepare to enter it by turning from your sins and obeying the Mosaic law. Why is Jesus not preaching to them you can have a relationship with God by believing in my death and resurrection? Because he hadn't died yet. That gospel's not available to them yet. They didn't know that he was gonna be dying. That hadn't happened yet. When Jesus comes bearing the gospel, it is the good news that he was bringing the Davidic kingdom back to Israel to be its king who would fulfill all of the covenants of promise of the Old Testament. So this semester when we're reading the ministries and teachings of Jesus, we need to understand this is what he came to do. This is the mission, the purpose, the good news that frames the teaching and ministry of Jesus. You know, we, we've covered a lot of material this morning. It's a pretty, pretty challenging sermon. Uh, there's a lot of stuff here. Let me kind of wrap it together and give you a few takeaways. Lots of stuff, but here's what I really want you to walk away with from this morning. Number one, yes, Jesus' words are relevant to us. Everything Jesus said, even those hard passages, there are principles that can be applied to our lives, and yet nothing Jesus spoke was spoken to us. We have to realize that so many people go wrong when they read the teachings of Jesus because they open their Bibles to those red letters and they ask, what is Jesus saying to me? But he wasn't speaking to you. He wasn't speaking to 21st century evangelical American Christians. When Jesus spoke, there was no church yet. The church wouldn't come along till later. He wasn't speaking to us. He was speaking to first century Jews. And because of that, if you're going to understand the teachings of Jesus, it takes work. I labored yesterday putting together the sermon. I went through like four or five outlines, desperately trying to figure out how can I make this material easy to understand. And none of the outlines were working. And finally, God helped me to understand uh, it's not working because the teachings of Jesus are not easy to understand. You can't make it easy. They're not easy. When you read Jesus, it's not like reading Time magazine. Everybody can read the teachings of Jesus and benefit from them, but to understand accurately the words of Jesus and apply them correctly to your life, it takes work. To understand Jesus, you must commit to be a diligent student of the word. You've got to be willing to study key words. You've got to dig into what words mean. Don't just assume they mean what you think they mean. When you see Jesus talk about gospel, salvation, eternal life, repentance, when you see these big words, don't just jump to a conclusion. You've got to study what do they mean in the Bible. What did Jesus mean by those words? Second, you've got to study the context of the Old Testament and those four biblical covenants. When Jesus showed up, what was his Bible? Think about it for a moment. What was Jesus' Bible? The Old Testament. There was no New Testament. When Jesus talks about the Word of God, what's he talking about? He's talking only about the Old Testament because that's the only Bible that existed. Then Paul shows up later and Paul starts to write. What was Paul's Bible? It's only the Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet. 
When, when these men speak, when Jesus speaks, when Paul speaks, and when they point you to the word, they're talking about the Old Testament. You cannot understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. The New Testament will never make sense to you. You will never understand it unless you understand the Old Testament because that was the word of God for the authors of the New Testament. The New Testament is built on the Old Testament, especially those four biblical covenants. If you don't understand those covenants, you'll never understand what the New Testament is about because it's about how God fulfills the four biblical covenants. So you've got to put in the work. You've got to put in the effort to study the Old Testament or you'll never understand the New Third thing, we've got to study the context of first century Jews. We have to put in the effort to read the teachings of Jesus as if we were his original audience. I challenge you this semester when we're reading the red letters in your Bible, put forth the effort to take off your 21st century American glasses, to set them aside and not ask first, what does this mean to me? To not bring your problems and your circumstances and your uh, issues to the text, but to instead put on the glasses of first century Judaism. When you read the red letters in your Bible, what you need to do is pause for a moment and say, this is not spoken to me. It was spoken to first century Jews. What was going on in their mind when they heard the words of Jesus? Okay, let me, let me think back. What did we learn about these people today? Well, we learned that they're the covenant people, that everything in their life was about those four biblical covenants. Their lives were oriented around those covenants. Uh, number two, uh, these were people who assumed they were already good with God by blood and by outward obedience to the law. They didn't think that they needed salvation in a spiritual sense. Number three, they were people who were desperate for political deliverance. What they wanted above all else was a military Messiah to come in and wipe out the Romans. Okay, now I have that in mind now let me read the words of Jesus if you'll read the words of Jesus like that they will make so much more sense to you his teachings will make so much more sense to you if you have in mind what it was like to be a first century Jew let's talk about application for a moment when you look at this I think that the application that that I would give you is actually a passage from Acts I challenge you with the words of Acts 17 10 to 11 as soon as it was night the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. My challenge to all of you, my prayer for all of us, is that we would be a congregation of Bereans. That you wouldn't just take my words as if they're the words of God. I'm a human being. I speak in error all the time. Don't take my word for it. Get into the word of God yourself. Be a Berean. Go home today and look at the teachings and ministries of Jesus. Read the word of God and study it. The challenge for us is that all of us are called to be diligent students of the word of God. The only way you will ever understand Jesus and rightly apply his teachings to your life is if you are willing to be a diligent student of his word, to spend time daily in his word, digging into it, seeking to understand it. You've got to put in the work or you'll never understand it. At Lane's memorial service yesterday, a lot of you a lot of you were there. There were a number of convicting things uh, that were said about Lane that were convicting to me as a pastor. The most convicting uh, was the story that um, Lane, about 17 years ago, he went to the Ukraine on a mission trip and, and there were no Bibles available for those people. And so he committed, uh, because I have the Bible, I'm going to spend time in the Bible every day. Lane never missed a day for 17 years. I'm, I'm a pastor. I can't say that. <laughs> I'm not there yet. 
For 17 years, every day, Lane spent time in the word of God. And I can tell you from knowing Lane, he didn't do it because of legalistic reasons. He didn't do it to check it off a list. He didn't do it out of obligation. He did it because he loved the word of God and he wanted to be a good student of it. He wanted to know the word of God. He wanted to draw closer to Jesus by studying his words. And so every day he spent time in the Bible. He put forth the work and the effort to be a diligent student who rightly understands and applies the word of God. That's the challenge for us. Let us be like Lane. Let us spend time, put forth the effort to spend in the word of God so that we can rightly understand it and rightly apply it to our lives. Reading the Bible is not easy. If you want to understand what it meant, if you want to correctly apply it to your life, it takes effort, takes investment. I challenge all of you to do that. Now, one of the best ways to do that is to join a small group. If you're not involved in some small group Bible study, I I really encourage you to do that. As we go through the book of James and many of our small groups this semester, we won't only be studying the book of James. We'll also be teaching you how to study the Bible. We'll be giving you tools, not just how to study key words and how to put things in context. We'll give you other tools that help you to be a diligent and accurate student of the word of God. So if you're not in a small group Bible study, uh, please go sign up today. Join a small group where you can become a student of God's word. Well, let's pray for God's help to make us diligent students this semester as we continue to study the teachings of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to earth 2,000 years ago. We thank you that, that though he is our savior, though he died on a cross for us, that he came first as king. And Lord, we just want to pause for a moment and, and we want to recognize that Jesus is king. That he is the promised king of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Old Testament. He is glorious and powerful and wonderful. Lord, we we praise you for that. We pray that as we study the teachings of Jesus this semester, that we would put in the effort to understand them rightly. That we wouldn't shy away from the difficulties, but that we would put in the work to dive in to really study what did Jesus mean. Lord, we thank you that even though Jesus came first to the Jews, that he came also to us Gentiles. That he is our Savior. That he has brought salvation and hope and redemption. And we look forward to the day when he will return and he will be king over all the earth. And we will enjoy and rule with him. Thank you so much for what Jesus has done for us. I pray that you would challenge us. That you would convict us. That you would change us. And that in all ways, Lord, you would help us to become more like Jesus. I pray for all of us that we would uh, choose to put forth the time and effort to be diligent students of your word. We believe that your word is the way, the truth, and the life. It is the only source of absolute and authoritative truth. So we pray, Lord, that we would spend the time to really understand it this semester. Challenge us and convict us. Drive us into your word every day. Thank you so much for it, Lord. You could have left yourself in the dark. You could have left us in the dark, not understanding you, but you revealed yourself to us. So please help us to study what you have given us in grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son above all else. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you. See you next week as we continue looking at the teachings of Jesus.